Hi, I'm John Harwood, your host for Bedeviled, a podcast about American democracy from the Paulist Center for Politics at Duke University. We bring you conversations with politicians, journalists, and academics about the delicate balance of our democracy. Eighteen months ago, few Americans knew the name Cassidy Hutchinson. She'd been a young staff member in President Donald Trump's White House, first handling congressional relations, then becoming the top aide to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. But then, at great personal cost, she made the bold decision to testify publicly to the House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. She described what she saw at close range and heard from close colleagues about Trump's desperate effort to overturn the election he lost to Joe Biden. The details were alarming. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Now she's the author of Enough, a riveting account of her White House experience and a warning about the threat to democracy that Donald Trump posed once and may pose again. And she's our guest for the second episode of Bedeviled. Cassidy Hutchinson, former Trump White House aide, brave witness before the January 6th committee and author of Enough, a riveting new memoir. Welcome to Bedeviled. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, John. Let me start by asking you about the beginning. Um, You describe in your book a lot of challenges in your childhood, difficult family life. How do you think that contributed to the path you chose, um, that is, to go into politics? So I I did grow up in a, uh, a working class family. My parents divorced when I was around 10 years old. I was in fifth grade. Um, you know, growing up, there, there definitely were challenges that we encountered, both with family dynamics and financial challenges. Um, and I write about this in the book, but I, you know, I, I do have a strained relationship with my biological father. But what I will say about him, and my mom has been extremely formative in my life as well, but with my father, I, I truly, he truly is one of the hardest workers, if not the hardest worker that I've ever met and known in my life. And from a very young age, I, I was not unaware. Uh, I was fairly aware of the way that we lived was somewhat different, but it didn't feel different to me, right? Because that's that's all I knew. But my father drilled into me from a very young age that um, education was the way out. Education was a way, the way to the, a better life, a better life than he had, and he worked so hard so we could have those opportunities. So I had this pretty acute understanding from a young age that I I wanted a better and different life for myself. You know, I've covered a lot of White Houses, and generally speaking, the people who end up at high levels in those White Houses are people 
um, who come from um, a fair amount of privilege. They're, they're people who are not like you, somebody who was the, the first in their family to go to college. And so it doesn't strike me that politics was a natural choice for you, but that's the choice you made. That's that's a very a diplomatic way of putting it. My you know, my family also is fairly, if not more, hostile towards the government than probably the average American family. Uh, but I was fortunate from a young age. My uncle, my uncle Joe, served in the military, so he was the first idea or I guess picture of that of a public servant that I had. So I. I had this sort of loose understanding of public service and I felt this draw towards public service. I took a trip to Washington, D.C. to visit my Uncle Joe uh, in elementary school and I felt almost what I describe now as this inexplicable draw or this sense of premonition when I first came to D.C. that I, I wanted to live here. I felt that this was where I needed and wanted to be. So, you know, as I progressed through middle school, high school, college, my end goal was to get to Washington D.C. and you're you're right. And so, I mean, I've only ever worked in White House and one White House, so I can't speak to all other White Houses. But there were many of my colleagues who were fairly politically connected, and I recognized that the position that I had, especially how I had ascended into the job in the chief of staff's office, was a little different than some people. And I. I don't know. I guess I chalk some of that up to it's a combination of hard work and luck. And I think that that's also the impetus of the American dream that our country is built upon. You know, if, you, if you work hard enough and you have an idea of what you want, you, you can achieve it. Now, now, you talk when you were in school about uh, the Romney-Obama election, and you had kind of a vague preference for Romney. It didn't seem to be particularly attached to specific issues. And then you described uh, it's at one point going to a Trump rally and looking around and saying, these are people like me. Um, you know, a lot of our politics revolves around culture now. And it strikes me that culture is what situated you within the Republican Party. That is, um, that felt like home to you. That's correct. I, and you know, I, I was delicate in the book because I, I don't, to me, this moment is so much bigger than partisan politics. We are very much so facing a constitutional crisis. So I tried not to tread too much into political issues. I do, I did consider myself a Republican. I consider, I continue to consider myself a Republican. Um, but in saying that, I, the scene you described at the first Trump rally, you know, I look back on that now and it's sort of the cinematic moment for me because I, I did vote for him in 2016 and I say this with regret and with shame, but it was more of a throwaway vote. I didn't ever think that he would win, but I also considered myself a Republican, so I didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, but it was at that first Trump rally that I went to that, I mean, you described it perfectly. I was, I was looking around and for the first time, I felt that magnetic pull that I had heard people describe and I had heard the media talk about through the election and through the first 100 days. And in that moment, it just, it clicked for me. And it was, it was the cultural revolution part of the Trump movement, which I now have a completely different understanding of. And I'm fortunate to have that with the experiences that I've had. But then I counter that with the last Trump rally I went to during the, um, 2020 campaign and we were on the ground in Wisconsin and I remember just weaving in and out of the crowds and I had I knew that I had sort of 
been encountering moments of disillusionment where I felt that what we were doing was wrong and I was a part of something that I was much bigger and more dangerous than I ever imagined I would be a part of. And I just wanted that, I wanted to feel that pull and that draw again. So I'm wandering through the crowds and I'm looking at people, the same, not the exact same people, but people I felt like I should or could recognize, people I grew up around that I felt that Trump had represented and that's why I'd wanted to work for him. And I just remember looking at them and thinking like they were, they were being conned by this man and I felt bad. And then, but the next thing I did was I walked back over to my colleagues and to the former president. So, so that was a, a moment where you started to see yourself as different from them. Um, but let me, let me go back to how you rose up in this business. The thing that struck me was when you were an intern in the House and the Senate, and then you went to the White House, was how good you were at it from the beginning. You were very young, but you're also very organized, very decisive, very detail-oriented. Did you surprise yourself at how successful you were as you were climbing and people were uh, pulling you to bigger and bigger jobs? That's an interesting question. I don't know if I've ever thought of it like that. I... I guess my short answer on that is no. And I don't think that I ever, I think that this period in, in the process of writing the book with my fantastic collaborator, Mark Salter, um, I realized and recognized that that was a little bit more unique. You know, I always, I saw that as I was doing the job that I was assigned to do and I was doing it a service to myself, my colleagues, the administration and the American people. If I did the bare minimum of that job, you know, I, I, took a job in public service because I truly believed in serving the interests and the needs of the American people. And I think, you know, I, I had this very, in my opinion, this acute sense of what that meant and how I could best serve in the office of legislative affairs. But I also suppose at the time I did recognize that I had developed relationships with members of Congress and principals very early on that most people hadn't. But I also, at that point, I sort of just chalked that up to the fact that I knew that I was efficient and I I could get a job done. Um, but I, I never really thought of it as like I was, I had unique capabilities or uh, characteristics that other people. I suspect that's where some of the, the hard work that you talked about um, seeing in your father uh, rubbed off on you. The, the other part of it was, um, and again, this was striking to me, given how young you were in these jobs, that you had a lot of strength in the sense that you were telling off David Bossie and Matt Gates and Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis when they were pressing for favors or you know things from the White House you didn't have any hesitation in saying, telling them to, you know, back off or no, you're not going to get that. That that where did that come from? <laughs> I think that really just comes from. <laughs> I think that really just comes from a place of knowing what a bad decision is and what a decent or better decision could be. And you know, I also was fairly aware of. Now, this could be up for debate, but of some of the more dangerous personalities around the former president at that time. And of course, you know, there are new names thrown into the mix now and in the in the months that preceded. But uh, 
No, I mean, there are certain voices that I just knew weren't responsible to have around the former president. And I saw it as my job tangentially to make sure that only as much as I could to make sure the only responsible people had access to him and to the chief of staff. I mean, because you could easily see, I could easily see someone as young as you folding um, uh, in response to that pressure. And, and that didn't happen. Um, l- let me ask you about one of the things that when I've told people I was going to talk to you there, uh, they've all said to me, what did she think about Trump at the beginning? We know where she ended up uh, about Trump, but what did you think at the beginning? Describe a little bit your view of him as a person and and what you thought he was actually trying to accomplish for the country if if he was trying to accomplish anything for the country. The very beginning of the campaign or my, the beginning of like my tenure working The beginning of him. your service okay. with him. Um, you know, I... I, I talked about the 100-day rally, and or the first rally I went to, which was the 100th day, his 100th day in the office rally. And I, I, you know, everything I did from the moment I worked, chose to work in the administration and came forward and testified, I, everything I did was a conscious choice. I, I, there was no point that I was unaware of what was going on. I think there were a lot of points where I was naive and I had a lot of blind spots, especially reading character in the beginning you know i I, again i talked about the 100th day rally and i but i really felt in that moment and in the unfortunately the years to follow that he was there to serve the american people and i saw that my parents and people in my family had voted for him in 2016 and for many of my family members that was the first time they had ever voted in a presidential election so i felt inspired by the quote unquote cultural movement aspect of Donald Trump. And I, you know, I wish that I hadn't, but that's, that's just the the truth. And I, to this day too, I, he had a lot of faults and he did a lot of, he made a lot of poor policy decisions, poor personnel decisions, and he did a lot of harm on the United States, harm that is going to be a permanent stain on our constitutional Republic. But so would you say that from the beginning, your 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 basic judgment was this was a decent person trying to do good things for the country? Or was it that he's sort of not such a good guy, but I agree with what he's trying to do for the country? I suppose it's sort of two pronged. On one hand, I I don't I guess I sort of thought he was a decent man. I never thought he was a good person necessarily, but I thought he was decent. But at the end of the day, for me, John, I did believe in some of the policies, not all of the policies. He had a lot of very negative policies with negative implications on the nation. But we also did make bipartisan strides. And for me, you know, I was very new to this idea of public service. I was very new to coming to Washington, D.C. and having a career here. I worked in the Office of Legislative Affairs. So my first job working in the White House was a fairly bipartisan job. I had to work with members on both sides of the aisle. So I didn't really see myself as a partisan player in all this, although I did work for a Republican administration. So I recognized that by nature, I had a partisan position. But my goal at the end of the day was to advance the interests and the needs of the American people. And I think to this day, I think you always need people like that in government, people that are willing and able to recognize poor policy decisions and good policy decisions and to be able to offer sound counsel when and if possible. 
Well, set, set aside um, the tragedy that occurred in 2020 and after the election, when you look back on the administration, what do you think of as a proud accomplishment that uh, you participated in? I guess for myself, I look back, you know, that's, that's a good question. I'm trying to feel, figure out how to phrase this correctly. I think what I'm most proud of, at least for myself, is the jobs that I had and the job that I did in those positions. And what I mean by that is I had lost myself at certain points in that journey for me. And I, I did become disillusioned and I did become severely disconnected from the public servant that I had wanted to become. And I had betrayed the oath that I swore to protect and defend our constitution and democracy. So I, I made a lot of mistakes, but I look back even now and I don't have regrets. And to me, there's the, there are two different things. And I think being able to recognize your mistakes but not regret them is something that's powerful and it's a lesson that I've learned in all of this because now I can look back on that experience with the hindsight that I have now. I'm proud of the work that I did. I'm proud of the principles that I served and I'm, I'm proud at the end of the day of the job that I accomplished. I'm not proud of some of the decisions that I made, but I'm proud of where all of that brought me to today. And I say all that because, you know, I believe still in American exceptionalism. I believe that we are an exceptional nation, but what is a big part that of what makes us an exceptional nation is the fact that we historically have been able to recognize our flaws and our mistakes and work to better that. And we're, in my view, we're in this very unique and, in, again, in my view, critically dangerous point in American history because our better angels are struggling to prevail. We are in this era of where there, there are poisonous conspiracy theories being proliferated across our nation and across and throughout the American constituency, and that's being accepted as fact. And we're not recognizing our flaws and faults, and we're not working to better that. There are many people who are, but there's a massive constituency that isn't. And I think that being able to reconcile the two different worlds and also see that to be able to look forward and create a better nation and to get through this period in American history is critically important to get through this, especially this next election. As I read your book, um, and, and it's, I found it very gripping, um, you, I, I thought you were doing a kind of slow motion turn or, or recognition as you saw different events occur. And one of those that struck me as significant was you you began to have trust issues with Mark Meadows, who had become the chief of staff and you'd been very close to. And it seemed to me that you saw him doing things that weren't on the level. Am I right about that? That's mostly correct. I think with Mark, I had been forewarned by many people that he was not to be trusted and I should never let my guard down too much with him. But I did work in very close proximity to Mark and he gave me a lot of leverage and power in my position, which I, you know, I, I am fortunate for. And I, again, I, I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't had the opportunities that he gave me and empowered me for. So for better or for worse, you know, I don't know if you would have the same take on the situation, but I, I did, 
at times I did let my guard down and I felt myself letting my guard down with him. And the moments that I felt the most distrust in him were the moments that I recognized that I had begun to trust him a little too much and I hadn't kept that veil up. Well, well, you ask about my perspective. As I was covering the Congress and the administration, my view of Meadows and the the, uh, uh, members of the caucus that he was part of was that they were just completely unreasonable and they were dragging down a speaker of their own party um, uh, without any prospect of actually getting things done. That's what it looked like to me. And and therefore, it was kind of surprising to me that he ended up becoming the president's chief of staff. Yeah, I don't, I, to this day, I, I still wonder sometimes what the decision-making process was on that. But I, what I will say to those, when I took the job with Mark, I was clear with him that I was taking the job to work for the White House chief of staff, not to work for chief of staff Mark Meadows. And there was a distinct difference in that for me. And the difference in that for me was I'm, I I consider myself personally more moderate on this scale of (laughs) how conservative we both are, uh, but more moderate than he is politically which is completely fine, but I saw my role as more objective and I was there to serve the office of the chief of staff, not to serve the principal Mark Meadows. And that was something that he had accepted from the moment that I took the job and he embraced it to the best of my knowledge, which I, I you know, I do think it made for a unique working relationship in those days. And I, but I also took the job with him because I, I recognized that we were entering a moment in American history, you know, the pandemic wasn't, hadn't hit the country in full force at that moment, but there was a moment where a lot of administration staffers recognized that the former president was uniquely unsuited to meet the moment because he is just a severely unempathetic person. But I saw a moment that Mark could come in and help lead the country through the pandemic and through the next election and prevail and be the leader that the administration and country needed in those moments. But he could only do that if there were people there willing to serve him objectively. And that's where I saw my role come in. You saw and were told about a lot of crazy stuff uh, on January 6th and before the, um, the, the plates with the ketchup going against the wall, the burning of documents, the, the episode in the beast when the president um, according to the Secret Service agent who recounted it to you, reached for the driver. Uh, and yet, after that, it looked like you were still going to go to Florida. Um, uh, or, or were you deciding not to do that? Uh, and and when the pre- you heard that the president maybe was losing confidence in you, that was what tipped you over. Talk about that. So two answers on that. I I had committed to moving to Mar-a-Lago before January 6th. And I, on January 7th, was still committed to that. On, And I, you know, I, again, I'm not proud of that, but that's just, you know, I'm not here to play revisionist history. I'm, I'm here to tell the truth. And it wasn't, I, ha- I have not had a linear journey through all of this. My view at the time, and especially on January 6th and 7th and the days following, I was really struggling with my decision But I, one, had made a commitment, and I was worried that backing out of that commitment would put a target on my back, and I already was fairly outspoken about how I felt that we were responsible and complicit in what happened on that day. But the second element of it for me was that I 
had begun to understand how dangerous and damaging the people who surrounded were who who were surrounding Mr. Trump at the time had been on not only for him but on the nation and i saw that he was likely to still be or likely to still have a stronghold on the republican party so i felt that if i could move down there with him still and if i could have some semblance of a position where i was in a in a spot where i could advise him objectively and to maybe weed out some of those personalities it would be better for the country overall too not that i could single handedly push him to a better place correct and i thought that not that I could single-handedly fix and solve everything, but I could help bring better people around him and we could avoid repeating something like on January 6th. But again, I didn't even know that he was going to announce candidacy for a second term at that time. Yeah. You have a very clear vision, I think, which uh, strikes me as correct, about the danger to democracy that is posed by Trump the agenda that he wants to bring back to the White House, the people he wants to surround himself with. Um, talk about your former colleagues in the Republican Party. And I'm thinking of people like Elise Stefanik, who you know had a job like yours in the White House in a previous administration. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's now left the Congress but says he wants to serve in the Trump cabinet potentially. And, and the other members of the Republican caucus. Do these people, do you think... Are they blind to the danger? Is it just about uh, career opportunities and they're rolling with it? Do you think when the chips are down that those people will come to or some segment of those people will come to the conclusion that you've come to about what's in the best interest of the country? You know, there's not a one size fits all answer, but I, I think overall, it's extremely disappointing, and that's honestly undercutting it. You know, they, the, the vast majority of Republicans serving in Congress right now, in my view, are a stain on our history and on our democracy. And in my view, most, if not all of them, know better than this. And they, they do know better. I, I yes, I, I'm not saying every single one. I'm sure that maybe there are some of them that really truly believe the election was stolen. You know, I, I don't know. I can't climb inside the psyches of all of them as much as I wish I could. But they have all had ample opportunities to do what I view as the right thing. And that's, you know, you don't have to speak out in the same way that I am or that Liz Cheney is, although I, I believe that that's the right thing to do and the courageous thing to do. Um, but just telling your constituents the truth. You know, you are... You, if you are running for Congress, you are running to represent a constituency and a portion of the population that doesn't have the ability to legislate and doesn't have the ability and doesn't have the perch in our government to have the control that they do. And they're there to represent. I think looking at this next election, as much of a danger as what Donald Trump poses on our constitutional republic, and the danger is very, very real. And I'm in no way trying to undercut that. But if Donald Trump was to fall off the face of the earth tomorrow, this problem, in my view, isn't going to go away overnight. It's not, in my view, that Congress isn't just going to flip a switch and denounce everything that has happened and return to the party of Lincoln that we have for so long been. Um, we have a body of elected Republicans that also contribute to the 
proliferation of lies and conspiracy theories that have damaged our democracy and our our democratic institutions and have instilled this bad faith in our institutions. And that's as much that's that's equally dangerous to what we're facing as what Donald Trump is too. So when we look at this next election, I think we, as much as we need to focus on making sure that Donald Trump is not reelected, we also need to focus on electing responsible, trustworthy, and honorable members of Congress to that body. What do you actually expect to happen in the next election? You've seen the polls like we all have. You know, John, I, it's difficult for me to speculate and I, I struggle not to doomsday hypothesize sometimes because I do have I do have so much faith in our founding documents and I do have faith in our systems and that our systems will hopefully prevail. But you know, so at this point, you know, Donald Trump isn't the nominee. It, but it looks like he's going to be, and if it is a Trump Biden ticket, you know, I think that we all have a service to pay forward to our nation and to our current generations and our future generations to make sure that Donald Trump never is anywhere near the Oval Office ever again. Well, speaking of future generations, um, aside from being a Republican, you're still a young person, not anywhere close to 30 yet. One of the challenges for Biden is that there's a significant amount of disaffection among some young voters. When you think about your peers, people you grew up with or young people you know, how do you expect them to respond to what they're going to hear over the next 12 months in terms of, you know, on the one hand, you know, bringing back Trump over an unpopular Biden. On the other hand, the danger to the country that uh, people like you are sounding. It's a bit difficult because I, you know, I, the mediums in which my generation and the younger generations consume news. Now, I, I think my situation in, is a little bit more, you know, I, I am constantly reading the news. It's pretty much all I, I do, especially in the positions that I have now. But, right. you're, you're atypical but, now. Uh, That's right. I do think, you know, there's there's really two things. I think it's extremely important to mobilize anybody 18 and over to vote in this next election cycle. And I think as much as we can involve younger people in this conversation right now, it is so vitally important. And I've, I've actually had a conversation with my brother about this because he, we're only four and a half years apart, but he doesn't recall being taught civics like I was. And he, he and m- many of his friends aren't politically involved or really don't care about politics, but they're also, I've been so enlightened and enriched by the young people I have met in the few months since my book has come out and their faith in our our system. I think that the more that we can shed light and educate them on the fact that one, their vote matters, but two, and more importantly, we can survive even if they don't agree with Joe Biden's policies we can survive four more years of Joe Biden's policies. We can't survive four years of another Donald Trump presidency, in my view. And I think the more that we can involve young people in that conversation and also begin to shed light on, we're facing a constitutional crisis, but the issues that the younger generation cares about, such as climate change, environmental concerns, student loan debt, healthcare, women's healthcare, and involve them in that conversation and help educate instead of just proliferate talking points, the partisan talking points from both the left and the right. You know, 
they are a very powerful constituency and one that I think really has the ability to turn this around for uh, the, our, our future, future generations. But they need to know that how important their voice and their vote is in this moment. Let me just close uh, with a couple of minutes by asking you about what your life is like now. Um, you, you took a very bold decision to testify. Um, you, you got a lot of threats and, and it was a frightening experience. Your lawyers helped you out. Um, now you're promoting your book. Uh, where do you see yourself uh, headed from here? H- have things sort of stabilized and you're not um, afraid anymore? And do you see yourself continuing to work in politics or getting out of it? So on the stabilization part, you know, I, I'm growing into the role that I have now. I, at least in the very, in the future, very near future, I, I never really saw myself as someone that was forward facing. You know, there are absolutely points in my career at the White House where I had considered that, but it wasn't, you know, I, I enjoyed being a background actor. I thought that I was, I could best operate behind the scenes. So it's, this has certainly been a transition to- You are not a background actor anymore. <laughs> I am not. So that has been a transition, but it's been one that's rewarding. And I recognize how much of an honor it is not only to have this position, but to be able to have conversations with people that I believe are extremely meaningful and important. I, but in saying that too, you know, I, I am a planner. You mentioned earlier that I'm organized and I thank you for saying that. It also is slightly frightening sometimes for me because I don't have that four or five year plan, but I also recognize that neither does the United States right now. And I think <laughs> at true. least for this next year, I I see it as an extension of a, my public service and a duty that I owe to my country and our fellow Americans that I can continue having these conversations as much as I can and keep this dialogue open because the more voices we have in this arena, I believe the better off we are as a nation overall. Are you at peace with... Um... Uh, the path that you've uh, chosen and um, accepting, you're getting a lot of accolades from people, of course, who agree with you um, and stepping past some of the enmity of of people who didn't. um, Does it feel okay to you right now? Yeah, absolutely. I've, there's never been a point in any, in all of this that I've second guessed my decision. I second guessed myself a lot when I wasn't doing the right thing when I hadn't been fully forthcoming with government investigators. So on that front, I'm completely at peace and I'm very proud of the decision that I made. And I'm very grateful for all of the people, including the January 6th committee, my attorneys, Capitol Police, that helped me get to this point, Simon & Schuster. Um, But on that too, you know, I, you know, of course there are still fears that I have, um, I don't, I don't like to cower to them and I don't believe that I really have, but Donald Trump is a dangerous man. You know, I, he has caused the deaths of several Americans, if not more, he has unleashed mobs of people on good men like Rusty Bowers or an election workers like Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, members of Congress like Liz Cheney, Nancy Pelosi, her husband, Adam Kinzinger. So that that's that's not normal, but that's just the reality that we face when we enter the, these positions. But it's so important to have a role like this and to recognize that there's 
a, a higher calling in all of this. And if I were to cower to that fear, then he is winning. And that's not something that we can continue let, letting allowing to happen. Ten years from now, are you still involved in politics or are you doing something completely different? <laughs> I... I hope that I will still be involved in politics, whether it's directly or tangentially. I think it's important. I, I love. This is where my passion is. This is where my heart is. I, you know, I, and I believe in. I believe in America, and I believe that we can get through this moment. And I, but I also believe that we need to get through it together. And there needs to be some continuity in the years that follow this, because this again, this problem won't go away overnight. And I hope that I still have the honor and the opportunities to still be civically involved. But at the end of the day too, I understand if there are people that step forward and that also care deeply about the United States. And I'll, I'll recognize that moment if slash when it comes to now what that looks like in 10 years. Potential candidate. Oh gosh. At this, at this moment, I would say no, or probably not. But I don't know. I mean, anything. If you would have asked me a year ago if I would have been on TV on MSNBC and CNN doing TV hits, I probably would have laughed. So I, I would say nothing is impossible, and I'm not going to say no to anything. But I, it's that's kind of hard for me to imagine right now. I, I might take that bet right now, uh, <laughs> Cassidy Hutchinson. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for writing your book. It's enough. Uh, published by Simon and Schuster. Um, I really appreciate your uh, being with us and sharing your experiences. Well, I appreciate you having me on, John, and thank you for listening, and thank you to your listeners for being here, too. Thanks for listening to Bedeviled. This podcast is possible because of the Paulus Center for Politics at Duke University. It's produced by Paulus Director Professor DeAndre Rose and Maria Luisa Fresson-Nori. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. You can listen to Bedeviled at paulus.duke.edu or on all podcast platforms.